everyone, and welcome to the DC Debrief for Friday, February 2nd, 2024. I'm your host, John Stolness, and coming up, Mayorkas impeachment. Do Republicans have the votes? Social media CEOs get a grilling on Capitol Hill. A bipartisan tax deal in this Congress? And with the two-year anniversary of the Ukraine war coming up, I'll be talking with Kurt Volker, former ambassador to NATO and U.S. Special Representative for Ukraine negotiations about that anniversary coming up on this edition of the D.C. Debrief. Just a reminder, everybody, tell your friends, your family members, even people you see on the street about the D.C. Debrief. This is the very best recap of the week that was in Washington, D.C. I'm going to tell you what happened. I'm going to tell you who said what, and then you can figure out what to do with the information on your own. Please, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever it is you get your podcasts. And if you do listen on Apple Podcasts and you can leave the show a five-star rating and a review, uh, that would be very much appreciated. It does help the podcast grow. All right, everybody, let's debrief you for this week. Mayorkas impeachment. This week, the House Homeland Security Committee officially voted to send two articles of impeachment to the full House of Representatives on a party line 11 to 8 vote that Democrats on the committee helped stall until one o'clock in the morning. It was a marathon session. But they could not stop it, as CBN News national security correspondent Caitlin Burke explains. If your refusal to obey the law leads to the death of your fellow Americans, you no longer deserve to keep your job. You're breaking the people's trust. The last cabinet member impeached came in 1876 under President Ulysses S. Grant. Corruption charges led to that outcome, and Democrats maintain this attempt is over a policy dispute. In a process akin to throwing spaghetti at the wall, and seeing what sticks. Republicans have cooked up vague, unprecedented grounds to impeach Secretary Mayorkas. In a new letter to the Homeland Security Committee, Mayorkas writes that the false accusations do not rattle or divert him. Democrats call the impeachment effort a sham, accusing House Republicans of following the wishes of former President Donald Trump. The extreme mega Republicans who are running the House of Representatives are deeply unserious people. They don't want progress. They don't want solutions. They want a political issue. And most of all, they want to please their disgraced former president. Trump wants Republicans to oppose an expected bipartisan immigration bill in the Senate, saying it would be a gift to Democrats and legislative victory for President Biden. A Senate vote could come as early as next week. GOP negotiators expressing frustration over claims it will be dead on arrival in the House. We want a change in law. And now it's interesting a few months later when we're finally getting to the end, they're like, oh, just kidding. I actually don't want a change in law because it's a presidential election year. Meanwhile, another House committee today considering the authority of states to unilaterally take action to secure the southern border if the federal government fails to do so. As Thomas Jefferson put it, self-preservation is paramount to all law. The fact of the matter is, of course, the people of Texas have a right to defend themselves, just as I have a right to defend my home and my family if it is under attack. Federal law governing immigration is the supreme law of the land. We cannot have 50 different sets of immigration laws, attempts by the states to enact and implement their own immigration enforcement policies that conflict with federal law are clearly unconstitutional. 
Democrats say if Republicans are serious about improving the situation at the border, they should pass legislation providing the funding to do so. When it comes to the articles of impeachment against Secretary Mayorkas, a full House vote could come as early as next week. However, that vote in the full House is not a slam dunk. There are some House Republicans who may not feel Mayorkas should be impeached because they agree what he's done hasn't met the high standards needed for impeachment. And there is a razor-thin majority in the House right now. The GOP, as currently constructed, can lose no more than two votes. Republican Ken Buck has already said that he is one of them, telling CNN on Thursday. This is not a high crime or misdemeanor. It's not an impeachable offense. This is a policy difference. Um, let me, from the outset, say there is a crisis on the border. Uh, the, the law needs to be enforced. Um, but uh, if we start going down this path of impeachment with a uh, cabinet official, uh, we are opening a door as Republicans that we don't want to open. The next president, who is a Republican, will face the same scrutiny from Democrats. It's wrong, and, and we should not set this precedent. And other reporting indicates three additional Republicans are noncommittal at the moment. Now, if Steve Scalise comes back from cancer treatment for a vote, which he has said he might do, that will increase the margin to three potential GOP defections and the House still being able to pass the articles of impeachment or the onto the onto the Senate. If it does pass, there will be a full Senate impeachment hearing. And that at this point is really what Republicans want. They know that there aren't the votes amongst the democratically controlled Senate to actually impeach Alejandro Mayorkas, but they do want to put the Biden administration's immigration record front and center. And the best way to do that during an election year here is that Senate impeachment hearing. So this would all be happening either as the primaries are winding down or as the general election is about to get started. So uh, not a slam dunk that uh, this that these articles of impeachment will move on to the full House. It is trending in that direction, but uh, we will likely hear some more about this over the weekend and early next week. Border deal. Senate negotiators say they are nearing an agreement on a border deal that not many people know the details about at the moment as we are recording this on Friday morning. No deal has been finalized as of yet, and no text of the bill has been released. But there are media reports that give us a clue of what could be in there. Some of the senators in those negotiations have pushed back on what's been leaked, but uh, it has long been known that House Speaker Mike Johnson and other hard-right Republicans want no part of any Senate compromise. A lot of the reasons for that, DHS Secretary Mayorkas, who they are trying to impeach in the House, has been working with Senate Republicans and Democrats on an impeachment deal. It appears as if House Republicans are not the only opponents, as we were finding out, Towards the end of the week, far left House Democrats appear to be against it, too. Progressives say they're frustrated at being left out of the negotiations and that it doesn't go far enough to protect asylum seekers and that it creates no path to, citi to citizenship for dreamers and other undocumented immigrants. They're also upset that the Hispanic caucus was not involved in the discussions. Now, Donald Trump has come out against it, saying it's a bad bill and that it doesn't do enough to protect the border. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell told his colleagues last week, as we talked about on the debrief, that the former president wants to avoid giving President Biden a legislative victory during this election cycle. 
tax deal. In a bipartisan vote, the House of Representatives passed a $78 billion tax bill that would expand the child tax credit and would put back into place three business tax credits that were removed during the time Donald Trump was in office. We talked about this on the debrief last week as well. The Tax Relief for American Families and Workers Act was passed overwhelmingly 357 to 70. Now, there were some Democrats and some Republicans who both voted against it, but it's very rare for the House of Representatives to vote in this way and agree on a bipartisan piece of legislation like this. This is also something you only see the House passing something anymore when they're up against a deadline or when uh, there's some kind of a threat of a shutdown or something else. This was not a, a vital piece of legislation. This was not a keep the doors open kind of legislation. So it's been unusual in this Congress, in this House, to see a bill like this passed. It is bipartisan. It is a bicameral tax bill, meaning Democrats and senators work together to come up with this new child tax credit. It would increase the maximum credit per child from $1,600 to $2,000 through 2025, adjusting for inflation this year and next year. It also calls for raising the ceiling for low-income housing tax credit by 12.5% through 2025, and it lowers the threshold for bond-financed buildings to receive low-income housing tax credit. It's not a foregone conclusion that it will pass the Senate, but Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer says he is in favor of the bill, and it does appear there are enough Republicans ready to jump on board as well, so Senate passage is more likely than not. Social media CEOs on Capitol Hill. This week, five CEOs of big tech. Meta's Mark Zuckerberg, Discord's Jason Citron, Snap CEO Evan Spiegel, TikTok CEO Shu Chu, and ex-CEO Linda Yaccarino all appeared before the Senate Judiciary Committee as senators hammered them and their platforms over CSAM. That stands for Child Sexual Abuse Material. And they say those CEOs have not done enough to stop the proliferation of CSAM on their platforms. CBN News congressional correspondent Matt Galka with more on this contentious hearing. I was sexually exploited on Facebook. I was sexually exploited on Instagram. I was sexually exploited on X. This is my daughter, Olivia. This is our son, Matthew. Look at how beautiful Miriam is. My son Riley died from suicide after being sexually exploited on Facebook. Family members held up pictures as the big tech CEOs heard members of Congress accusing them that their social media products severely harmed and in some cases led to the deaths of children. Mr. Zuckerberg, you and the companies before us, I know you don't mean it to be so, but you have blood on your hands. You have a product. You have a product that's killing people. The focus of the grilling, social media content containing sexual exploitation of children across various platforms. The hearing also veered into how those apps police, or in many cases, don't police content that could cause a child to harm themselves. Um, we deploy a, a wide array of techniques that work across every surface on, our, um, on Discord. Um, I mentioned we recently um, launched something called Teen Safety Assist, which works everywhere, and it's on by default for teen users. That kind of acts like a buddy that um, lets them know if they are in a situation or talking with someone that may be inappropriate so they can report that to, to us and block that user. Mr. Citron, if that were working, we wouldn't be here today. Your platforms really suck at policing themselves. 
and in maybe the most memorable moment of the hearing. Missouri Senator Josh Hawley put Meta CEO Mark Zuckerberg on the spot, compelling him to face the families and the audience. Senator, our job and what we take seriously is making sure that we build industry-leading tools to find harmful to content, make money. to take it off the services, uh, to make money, and to build tools that empower parents. So you didn't take any people. action. You didn't that's take any true, action. Senator. You didn't fire anybody. You haven't that's compensated a single not, victim. Let me I ask said. you this. Let me ask you this. There's families of victims here today. Have you apologized to the victims? I, Would I, you like to do so now? Well, they're here. You're on national television. Would you like now to apologize to the victims who have been harmed by your product? Show them the pictures. Would you like to apologize for what you've done to these good people? And it wasn't just sexual content. Other senators questioned how much self-harm pictures or videos are being splashed across social media, while Texas Senator Ted Cruz questioned TikTok's CEO over whether or not that platform had an anti-Israel bias. Congress does have a number of bills that would go after CSAM. One of them is the Stop CSAM Act, which would allow family members to sue the social media companies should a loved one fall victim to child sexual abuse material. Another is the SHIELD Act, which would go after people online who share explicit material. Those pieces of potential legislation have been met with mixed reaction by those CEOs and other big tech companies. Notable in, a, in their absence at this hearing, YouTube, the media most widely used by teens and children for watching streaming content online. They did not accept the invitation to appear at this hearing. China cyber threat hearing. Another hearing, this one before the House Select Committee on, Chinese on the Chinese Communist Party this week. FBI Director Christopher Wray testified about the cyber threat that China poses to the U.S. The CCP's dangerous actions China's multi-pronged assault on our national and economic security make it the defining threat of our generation. Now, when I described the CCP as a threat to American safety a moment ago, I meant that quite literally. There has been far too little public focus on the fact that PRC hackers are targeting our critical infrastructure, our water treatment plants, our electrical grid, our oil and natural gas pipelines, our transportation systems, and the risk that poses to every American requires our attention now. China's hackers are positioning on American infrastructure in preparation to wreak havoc and cause real-world harm to American citizens and communities if and when China decides the time has come to strike. They're not focused just on political and military targets. We can see from where they position themselves across civilian infrastructure that low blows aren't just a possibility in the event of a conflict. Low blows against civilians are part of China's plan. During the hearing, officials said they already blocked an effort backed by the state of backed by China to plant malware that could be used to damage civilian infrastructure. The operation, which was announced just before Director Ray addressed House lawmakers, disrupted a botnet of hundreds of U.S. based small office and home routers owned by U.S. citizens and companies that had been hijacked by Chinese hackers to cover their tracks as they tried to implement malware. Their ultimate targets included water treatment facilities, the electrical grid, and transportation systems across the United States. So if you're one of those people that's using a router 
that is discontinued by companies like Cisco and Netgear, companies that no longer support these routers um, and that cannot repair these routers. These are the types of things that, that are being used by homeowners and small businesses that China is using to infect our water treatment facilities, electrical grids with malware. This is a warning uh, by the FBI and by government officials that China is using everything that they can in their disposal to go after civilian targets, to create, uh, to, 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 just be, to to put in uh, into place, should the need arise, as Christopher Ray mentioned in his in his soundbite, should they decide to at some point attack civilian targets, this is how they're going about trying to do that. Christopher Ray and the House Select Committee on the Chinese Communist Party bringing to light some of these efforts by China uh, in recent years. Defunding UNRWA, the United States and some of its allies this week temporarily stopped funding UNRWA, the United Nations Relief and Works Agency, over allegations by Israel that members of UNRWA knew about and were involved in the planning and execution of Hamas's attack on Israel back on October 7th. Israelis and some conservatives have long criticized UNRWA for being overly sympathetic to the Palestinians living in the Middle East, for being sympathetic to attacks launched against Israel, and for launching unfair accusations against the Jewish state. Israel alleges that more than a dozen UNRWA staff members were involved in the October 7th attack or knew about it. In 2018, the Trump administration cut its funding that opened up a $446 million hold, hole that was mostly filled by other countries. That funding was restored under the Biden administration. In a House hearing this week, both Republicans and Democrats spoke out against UNRWA, Republican Congressman Chris Smith and Democrat Susan Wild. There has been a long, long been a massive and irrefutable evidence of UNRWA's extensive uh, uh, complicity and cooperation in Hamas's anti-Semitic genocidal hate campaign. How do we ensure that the innocent civilian population of Gaza that is facing famine does not pay an even steeper price in human life because of the actions of 12 horrific individuals. CBN News Jerusalem correspondent Julie Stahl has more on the Israeli claims being made against the UN Relief Agency. Knesset member Sharon Haskell created the caucus to reform UNRWA nine years ago. UNRWA is an organization of the United Nations that is a complete cover-up for Hamas activities. They are inciting and educating children to violence and hatred. In caring for so-called Palestinian refugees living in the West Bank and Gaza Strip as well as nearby countries, UNRWA's website says its services include primary and vocational education, primary health care, relief and social services, and camp improvement. We need to understand that UNRWA is not an organization that provides education and welfare and health care. That's merely the facade. It's an organization that has two deep roles to ensure that the conflict from 1948 remains an open case and therefore that there is a permanent question mark on Israel's very existence, creating a generation after generation of Palestinians who believe that one day Israel will not exist. Dr. Anat Wilf adds UNRWA relieves Hamas of any humanitarian responsibility, a philosophy confirmed by senior Hamas member Musa Abu Marzouk, who said these tunnels are meant to protect Hamas from Israeli planes, and it's the responsibility of the UN to protect the people. There's a generation that does not know that UNRWA was started 
in order to undermine the state of Israel. Count Falk Bernadotte, who was the first UN mediator, he, he was upset with the right of re, the, the law of return. That law allows Jews worldwide to immigrate to Israel. So he said well, the, the Palestinians have to have the right of return, the inalienable right to go back to where they came from in 48, instead of being you know, absorbed like any other refugee. Julie Stahl, CBN News, Jerusalem. Now, UNRWA denies claims that they were involved in the October 7th attacks, and pro-Palestinian groups warn that taking money away from UNRWA at a time when Gaza is, is in most need of humanitarian aid, would directly harm innocent Palestinian civilians living in the Gaza Strip and in refugee camps in the area. With regard to Israel, President Biden this week issued sanctions against four Israeli settlers in Gaza for what he called aggression and attacks against Palestinians and peace activists in the West Bank. And that also includes visa bans. State Department spokesman Matthew Miller explains why the sanctions were necessary. President Biden and Secretary Blinken have been clear that the levels of violence we have seen in the West Bank over the past few months are unacceptable. Violence in the West Bank surged to alarming levels in 2023. This includes unprecedented levels of violence by Israeli extremist settlers tar tar targeting Palestinians and their property, as well as violence by Palestinian extremist militants against Israeli civilians. Earlier today, the president issued a new executive order establishing U.S. authority to impose financial sanctions against foreign persons engaged in actions that threaten the peace, security, or stability of the West Bank. Lloyd Austin apology. This week, Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin made an unusual stop in the Pentagon briefing room to apologize and take responsibility for failing to notify the White House or other Pentagon officials about his recent cancer diagnosis and stay in the hospital. Austin's absence was unknown to the rest of the administration and many close to him at the Pentagon, and it caused confusion as to who was actually in charge of the U.S. military during those few days that he was in the hospital after complications to his surgery. I'm recovering well, but as you can see, I'm still recovering. I'm still having some leg pain and doing physical therapy to get past it. I'm deeply grateful to my doctors and the nursing staff at Walter Reed, and I very much appreciate all the good wishes. But I want to be crystal clear. We did not handle this right, and I did not handle this right. I should have told the president about my cancer diagnosis, I should have also told my team and the American public. And I take full responsibility. I apologize to my teammates and to the American people. Now, I want to make it very clear that there were no gaps in authorities and no risk to the department's command and control. At every moment, either I or the deputy secretary was in full charge. And we've already put these and no risk to the department's command and control. At every moment, either I or the Deputy Secretary was in full charge. And we've already put in place some new procedures to make sure that any lapses in notification don't happen. Some in Congress are calling for his resignation. Others say they want an investigation into what happened. You can expect hearings likely coming down the pike in Congress. Fed rates and the U.S. economy with some good economic news out this week. Consumer confidence the highest it's been in two years and worries about a recession fading with each passing day. The U.S. economic recovery from the pandemic has also outpaced every other nation in the world. And yet headwinds remain, such as high inflation and a housing market in which there is not nearly enough supply to meet demand. 
It's not certain that a recession can be avoided, but CBN's Abigail Robertson has more on the optimistic state of the U.S. economy. Fears over a possible U.S. recession seem to be starting to fade with recent U.S. economic reports displaying strong resilience, leading the IMF to also predict a soft landing for global growth. With inflation declining steadily and growth holding up, the chance of a soft landing has increased. The IMF's chief economist warns, however, the expansion remains slow and risks remain. Maybe if central banks remain too tight for too long, there could be a slowdown in economic activity, or if there is a tightening of financial conditions, or if there is a, a, another round of supply shocks, for instance, there could be downside to the global economy. But there can also be upside to the global economy. Inflation could be continuing to come down back toward targets. At the end of 2023, the U.S. economy grew higher than anticipated, while consumer spending in December also rose. We were seeing maybe inflation being very persistent. There were, very, there were a lot of concerns about the fact that the fight against inflation would put, potentially bring a recession. And one year later, we are in a situation where growth has held steady and inflation has been coming down. So there's certainly a, a, you know, a very good development. Still, some experts warn the U.S. may not be out of the woods yet, with certain sectors of the economy slowing due to the Federal Reserve's interest rate increases to fight inflation. Inflation is still too high. Ongoing progress in bringing it down is not assured. And the path forward is uncertain. Cory Bush investigation. The Justice Department has opened an investigation of Democratic Congresswoman Cory Bush over accusations she misused campaign money for personal security. The DOJ this week subpoenaed House Sergeants at Arm, the House Sergeant at Arms for documents related to the case. The Associated Press says the investigation centers around Bush paying her now husband, Courtney Merritt's with campaign money to provide security for her. Bush has apparently been undergoing a congressional ethics inquiry on this, as well as one by the Federal Elections Commission. There are instances in which it is legal to use campaign money for personal security reasons, and Bush denied any wrongdoing. She said everything she's done has been within the scope of the law, and noted as an outspoken progressive in Congress, she has received an inordinate number of threats against her, and that is a rank-and-file member, she is not entitled to personal protection by the House of Representatives. She claims she has not used any federal tax dollars for personal security. Well, NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg was in Washington, D.C. this week, meeting with Secretary of State Anthony Blinken and Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin. This is just a couple weeks ahead of the two-year anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And joining me to talk a little bit more about the anniversary as it's right around the corner here, Kurt Volker, former U.S. ambassador to NATO from 2008 to 2009. He served as U.S. Special Representative for Ukraine negotiations from 2017 to 2019. And he's now a distinguished fellow at the Center for European Policy policy analysis. Ambassador Volker, thank you for joining me. It's a pleasure. Thank you very much. So uh, with the NATO Secretary General coming into Washington, D.C. this week to meet with uh, uh, Mr. Blinken and Mr. Austin, was the reason for his visit, visit the most obvious reason to simply encourage the U.S. to continue funding Ukraine's war effort? I think that's part of it. Uh, certainly, there is a, a need for more military support to Ukraine because Russia keeps attacking them and they keep killing civilians and they keep bombing cities. And so Ukraine needs help to defend itself. But in addition to that, uh, there's going to be NATO's 75th anniversary summit taking place in Washington, D.C. this July. 
And so there's some planning going on for that as well. What does NATO say about Ukraine? How far can we go in helping them? Will there be any direct NATO role in assisting Ukraine? Uh, those are things that I think are on the, on the agenda there as well. Uh, so I think there's just a, a good opportunity to coordinate about where things are headed. Finally, uh, this is Secretary General Stoltenberg's last year. The assumption is that they will finally select a new Secretary General. And uh, there's probably some coordination going on behind the scenes about that, too. So as we approach this two-year anniversary of the Ukraine war, how are things going? I mean, it's really fallen off the news. I mean, the, the conversation about funding Ukraine is certainly front and center, but we're not hearing a whole lot about where things stand on the battlefield right now. Yeah. And this is, this is very important for people to hear. So thank you for, for putting that question out there. Uh, two years ago, uh, Russia launched this massive invasion of Ukraine, moving into the country with tanks and armor you know, from about five or six different directions. And they took over huge pieces of territory, including just to the north of Kiev, the capital city. Over the course of the next year, the Ukrainians pushed that back, and they've taken back about half of everything that Russia took in those first months of the invasion. But since then, the war has now settled along a front line where the Ukrainians have been able to, attack, to take back small amounts of territory, but nothing decisive. Russia has taken some additional territory, but nothing decisive. It is a bloody artillery battle right on the front lines there. And it, the war has shifted in a way because what Russia has resorted to now is just attacking civilian targets, just attacking cities, just attacking uh, power supplies, energy uh, distribution networks. They're using missiles, bombs, drones um, just to go after Ukrainian cities because they can't do much else. Ukraine has tried to use precision-guided long-range munitions to knock out Russia's logistical supply lines and also to take out pieces of uh, Russia's Black Sea fleet and push them away from the western part of the Black Sea where the port of Odessa is so that Ukraine can have access to global markets again through shipping. Uh, so Ukraine has pushed back, continued to do so. Um, they've sunk about 20% of the Black Sea fleet. Um, they've knocked out Sevastopol as a viable uh, harbor for Russian ships. So the, Russia has had to pull back to the Russian coastline. Um, this has enabled Ukraine to restart shipments out of ports. And uh, with the longer range munitions and drones that they have, they're now blowing up fuel depots and ammunition depots and defense industry, even inside Russia, uh, with their own homegrown equipment. Uh, so that's been the change in the nature of the war. Now, the, the U.S. assistance is important because we're going to be resupplying ammunition and equipment for Ukraine so they can continue to defend themselves uh, because Russia keeps attacking. Uh, but it is not likely to produce a major change in the trajectory of the war unless we actually ramp up with some of the equipment that we have held back on so far. Doesn't seem like the Biden administration is ready to do that. Um, they are holding back on the longest range artillery. They're holding back on airframes. So we're not giving Ukraine the air superiority they would need to actually advance on the ground. Um, but we will make sure that Ukraine continues to survive as a sovereign, independent European democracy, which is all they need and all they want. Um, I should take that back. It's not all they need and all they want. They want to take all of their territory back and free all of their people who are living under Russian occupation right now. But we're not giving them the means to do that. But at least Ukraine as a, as a national identity and as a country will survive. 
And I think a lot of the arguments that folks have had against arming Ukraine or continuing to put money into Ukraine is that the idea, the goal for Ukraine is, as you mentioned, to eject Russia from their country so they can have their country back. But if it doesn't seem as though the Biden administration is willing to go all the way in order to help Ukraine fully do that, the argument against funding money, funding Ukraine is then, well, why are we, why send anything? Why, why do anything at this point, unless you're going to go full force and, and allow Ukraine to actually fulfill its mission? Does that hold any water? Well, it's a great question. It's a great question because we should be giving the Ukrainians what they need and we're not. Um, and so the question, as you asked, is, well, then why, why keep giving them stuff if we're not serious? And the answer to that, however, is because Russia keeps killing them. Uh, we can't just sit by and watch as Russia, you know, lobs bomb after bomb, missile after missile, drone after drone at Ukrainian cities all over Ukraine. Um, this is just unconscionable. So they need the help to defend themselves. But you're right. We should also be doing more to actually help them win. Is Ukraine's goal realistic? Can they achieve that goal? Or at some point, are they going to need to reassess what's possible? Well, when you look at will, you know, and so much of warfare is about a, a challenge of will, Ukrainians have far more will to defend their families and their homeland than the Russians have to attack it. So in that sense, the, the, in a test of wills, Ukraine measures up. What they don't have today is all of the equipment, all of the ammunition that they would need to accomplish that goal. They are holding the line and they are investing massively in their own defenses. You know, we, we talk at NATO about spending 2% of GDP on defense. Ukraine is spending something like 40% of GDP on defense. <laughs> so uh, yeah. they, they are massively investing and they have the know-how, they have the, the educated workforce. They will build a, a defense industry um, that will give them more capability in the future, but that's going to take time. At this point, what is Russia's winning scenario? I mean, what, what can they reasonably hope to accomplish? And is that something the U.S. is willing to live with? Well, what Russia wants, or what Putin wants, is very clear. He wants to eliminate Ukraine as a sovereign state, take it all over, make it part of the Russian empire, have a local government in Ukraine that is responsive to him. Um, that's never going to happen, but that's what he wants. And what he's hoping for is that he can outlast the West. Uh, he, he's willing to take the casualties. He's willing to spend the money and use the, the military equipment they've got and hope that he can outlast the Western will to actually support Ukraine. And he's hoping maybe for you know, elections in the U.S. or elections in Europe, you know, some roll of the dice that he's going to get lucky and the West will stop supporting Ukraine. Uh, and, and just outlast us. I, I don't think that will happen either, but that is clearly what he's betting on. So in, in terms of the United States role here and in terms of their role with, with NATO as a whole, um, there are some who would love to see the, the United States withdraw from NATO or at least have less of an involvement with NATO, you know, wanting to close, look more inward rather than, than helping countries traditional allies outward. Is there a concern for you in the direction of the country that we're heading that direction? Or do you feel like we are still, that there's still enough of a connection to NATO and that European interests still remain American interests? Well, two things. First, you do hear voices like that, but they are the exception. Uh, the vast majority of people 
and the vast majority of, of politicians in both political parties strongly support NATO and understand the value that that provides to the United States. That by banding together and treating an attack on one as an attack on all, it prevents war. It means that no one will attack NATO countries. And so right. it is a bargain for the U.S. that, you know, we were dragged into World War I. We were dragged into World War II. We had tremendous casualties. And our leaders after World War II had the courage and the foresight to recognize that Stalin was a threat. And that if we didn't actually get Europe banded together to defend ourselves collectively with the United States and Europe, um, that Stalin would take over Europe or he would try and there would be more war. And instead, by, by founding NATO the way we did in 1949, we have not had a major war in Europe that has dragged the U.S. into it. We've, we've had crises in Bosnia and Kosovo where we chose to get involved, but we were not dragged into fighting a war uh, because NATO was there. Uh, now we have a situation where because Ukraine's not in NATO, Putin felt like it was fair game to attack. Uh, now we've got to actually end that war and then put the lid back on. Well, certainly a very volatile situation. It remains a volatile situation two years after it started and uh, no shortage of opinion on it here in the United States in terms of how involved the United States should get on it. But uh, Ambassador Volker, I really appreciate your time. And uh, everyone, please uh, make sure that you're following what Am Ambassador Volker is doing over at the Center for European Policy Analysis. Ambassador, thank you for joining me. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you. And now it's time for The Closer. And we had a couple of faith-based events in Washington, D.C. this week that CBN News was covering. Our own chief international correspondent, George Thomas, was in the nation's capital here with us in D.C., attending the International Religious Freedom Summit. It's an annual gathering of people from around the world to talk about religious freedom and religious persecution and discussing ways to help those who are suffering from that persecution, as George told us on Faith Nation this week. Well, to the organizers of the International Religious Freedom Summit, they say 80% of the world's population faces some form of religious oppression from 365 million Christians around the world who suffer for their faith to the Uyghur Muslims in Xinjiang province in China, to the Buddhists of Thailand, to the Rohingya Muslims in Myanmar, to the Hindus and the Muslims and Christians in India across the globe be it in Nigeria, to Yemen, to Iran, to, uh, I mean, you just name it, Saudi Arabia, uh, China, people of faith around the world uh, suffering for their faith. And so uh, an opportunity to bring these various diverse groups of, of uh, people of faith together in one place to talk about the plight that they, uh, they face and the challenges they face and to provide a sense of unity that you can work across different denominations, different faith groups for this one purpose in order to allow themselves to continue to practice their faith uh, in freedom as well as in safety. This week was also the National Prayer Breakfast, an annual event that has gotten smaller in scale the last couple of years, a little bit more intimate than it was uh, before 2023. Uh, as in 2023, Congress took over the planning and execution of the breakfast rather than the traditional independent organization. This year's event was held at Statuary Hall for the first time. President Biden, an active and practicing Catholic, with some thoughts on faith in America in the environment we are currently in. At a moment of deep division in our nation, President Lincoln said, we are not enemies. He said, we are not enemies, but friends. We must not be enemies, he went on to say. I've long believed we have to look at each other, even in our most challenging times, 
not as enemies, but as fellow Americans. Scripture tells us the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. I believe that's our collective calling today. And that's going to do it for this week's edition of the DC Debrief. Again, please remember to subscribe to this fine podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever else it is you get your podcasts. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in. We'll talk to you next time right here on the DC Debrief.